welcome to Vitals, where we explore the most pressing topics in healthcare and data. Today's topic is really exciting. We're getting a pulse on how new tools like ChatGPT and other AI and other trends in uh, digital health transformation are changing the way we deliver care. We're going to explore the benefits and concerns new AI tools pose and how healthcare organizations can leverage these technologies ethically and at scale. Joining us are Ben Suster, uh, Strategic Accounts here at Arcadia, uh, Rich Parker, our Chief Medical Officer at Arcadia, and Deepu Patel, who is the Vice Chair of Innovation and a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, great panel today. Thank you all for joining us. I'm going to hand it over to Ben to really get the meat of this conversation started. So, Ben, uh, welcome and floor is yours. Thank you, Mike. Um, thank you to our audience for joining us today. Uh, my name is Ben. I could not be more excited to be here today with uh, Rich and Deepu. Feels like all the buzz lately is about AI, chat GPT. It's all I've been hearing about. And it just feels like we are on the verge of something really big here. Uh, we being just all of us. Um, I think it was um, one of the execs from Google that said this will be bigger than the discovery of fire, which is both really exciting and also makes me pretty nervous. That sounds kind of terrifying. And so with that said, um, wanna introduce and hear more from our panelists. So uh, if we could, um, you know, hear a little bit more about you and why you're excited to be here. Deepu, starting with you, and then uh, we'll go over to you, Dr. Rich. Well, I'm here exactly for the same reason that you said, right? What is the fear? What are we doing about this? This, um, what seemed to be 30 years in the future is here now. Um, I feel like the pandemic has, um, you know, elevated this issue and brought it to the forefront faster than we were um, prepared to handle it, as is very apparent in the news cycles these days. Um, but my background in, and my interest in this lies from a healthcare uh, perspective. Uh, I'm a PA, I've been a PA for 23 years. I've worked in various uh, specialties, emergency medicine, urgent care and hemong. Um, and in my current role as vice chair of innovation, part of my role is understanding these technologies and bringing them to life or understanding them better to mitigate what uh, issues it may bring. Um, kind of having your eyes on the horizon of what's next with this technology, but also learning to look beyond that horizon and seeing what do we what do we need to plan for. Um, and I feel like right now we're in a little bit of a reactionary mode with this uh, with this in this space and how we're grappling with this. Um, but as you'll see, there are a lot of um, pros to it. Uh, we just need to figure out how to put the appropriate guardrails around this particular piece of technology. Rich? Sure. Yes. Well, Deepu, thanks. And just by way of introduction, um, Rich Parker, I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Arcadia. Uh, before coming to Arcadia, I was at Beth Israel Deaconess in several roles. I was there for 30 years as an internist, um, the medical director, then the Chief Medical Officer for their physician network, uh, which is when I became acquainted with Arcadia. I came over to Arcadia eight years ago. And for anyone who doesn't know, Arcadia is a national healthcare data and analytics company helping large healthcare organizations do better in population health and value-based care. And I say we always have three goals, improve the health of the population, 
improve the finances of the contracts that the doctors are engaged in and the other providers and take work off the providers' plates. So those are always my three goals. In terms of AI, it's a wild new, wild west here that we're dealing with, really exciting. Uh, I'm not sure it's as big as figuring out fire, but um, <laughs> we, we, we can debate that. But certainly I think there, we're gonna talk about today a lot of potential good and maybe some downsides as well. Great. Um, again, couldn't be more excited. And it's also so fitting to be doing this today on Star Wars Day. We're talking about AI and all this futuristic, innovative technology. So again, really excited. Um, so let's start with the tool that we've all been hearing about lately, which is ChatGPT. Um, I've been using it here and there. It's been a lot of fun, but it's also been really supportive in helping my productivity. And what I'm also hearing is that this is just scratching the surface as far as um, AI and what we're gonna be capable of. So Rich, starting with you, how do you think um, a tool like ChatGPT is going to help and be used in the clinical setting? Yeah, so in healthcare, and just to answer it from the healthcare perspective right now, um, you know, we often talk about wanting providers to work at the top of their license. And sometimes that phrase is aspirational rather than um, achievable. And I do believe and hope that ChatGPT is going to help our profession allow providers to work closer to the top of their license by taking some of the kind of the grunt work or scut work, or maybe that's the wrong way to characterize it, but an example would be the taking of the history for a patient. So when patients come to either a doctor's office, an emergency room, a hospital, their history always has to be taken. It's a very important part, maybe the most important part of diagnosing what is wrong with them. But a lot of that pre-work could be done by ChatGPT. So that's just one example. The downside, which maybe we'll get into later, is I am most concerned about potentially the loss of jobs um, and that maybe some of those moderately skilled folks are not going to have another job to go to. But we'll get into that. So that's just a quick off-the-top response. Deepa, what do you think? Um, yeah, as far as the clinical setting, but also in uh, medical education, since I know you're in academia as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll, I'll use the example that Rich has given, which is taking a history. And he's right. Uh, 80 to 90 percent of the time you can get your diagnosis just by asking the questions. And if we can uh, augment our history taking with um, with things like uh, ChatGPT or other AIs. By the way, ChatGPT is not the only one that's on the market. It just happens to be the one that's most popular right now. Um, you know, the way I look at it is, what are we doing to teach our students to augment their practice, their future practice with this uh, with this technology? Um, and while it's true that you uh, you definitely can get a diagnosis 80 to 90% of the time by asking the questions. It's how you ask the questions and the intent with which you ask those questions that can guide um, guide the diagnosis that you ultimately will, will reach. Um, so there are pros and cons to it. Um, we want to remember that AI is a tool, not a replacement. It is meant to augment the work we do. Um, and Rich is right, there are going to be some jobs that are going to um, be impacted by this. But at the same time, there will probably be new jobs and new industries created because of it. So, um, you know, as a clinician, sometimes we're pessimistic about these sort of sorts of technology. 
uh, for the first time in a long time, I'm optimistic about this. Um, I wanted, so if I could just add, if I could just add one finer point on the taking of the history, I'm sure that chat GPT could do a fine job of figuring out almost all of the right questions to ask somebody if they're presenting with shortness of breath or chest pain or abdominal pain or a headache. But what I don't think it can do well, at least not yet, is what we do as clinicians, we're sitting across from a patient. When the patient gives us maybe 15 or 20 items of information, we have a way of weighing the importance of those factors one against the other based on how the patient says it even how they look, even what they don't say. And that is something that I don't think technology can yet uh, fill our shoes for. Agreed. And, I, and I'll just follow up. There was a recent study, as recent as probably last week, I think that just came out that said that ChatGPT is, quote unquote, more empathetic than physicians. I don't know if anyone saw that. But, um, you know, I looked at it and um, I think the my question in that is, OK, um, I think the example they used in the study was someone had uh, accidentally splashed bleach in their eye. And the responses that ChatGPT um, made, uh, made or answered uh, and created versus the physician ones tended to be more empathetic. Now, if you actually were there in person, the tone and your body language with which you approach that patient those quote unquote soft skills that we talk about in, in healthcare and medical care um, matter more. So maybe it's more empathetic on paper, but in reality, it's the empathy and the tone with which we deliver the care uh, is, is what's really going to matter. And yeah. I think, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. And I did read that study. And I <laughs> was smiling when I read it because I didn't mention that my clinical work these days is in hospice. So on right. weekends, I, I work in Lincoln, Massachusetts, um, in a freestanding hospice for very sick patients. And I can see how ChatGPT maybe could come up with the right dose of morphine or the right dose of Ativan, the right dose of Dilaudid, but it's not going to be able to hold the patient's hand or look the family in the eye or listen to whatever their sadness or their emotion is. That just that human part of medicine, fortunately, we don't have to worry about being replaced on that. And in fact, I think this sort of technology will further emphasize the importance of that aspect of human, of the human touch. Um, yeah, thank you both. I mean, that sounds like somewhat maybe optimistic news to me <laughs> where it could be more of a collaborative approach between machine and doctor where hopefully, like Deepu said, it's going to be used as a tool and maybe ideally less so as a replacement. Um, Dr. Rich, you did say not yet, so that gets me thinking about iRobot <laughs> where we're going to be talking, uh, receiving our diagnoses from actual robots. But if I could, actually, if we could stick with um, machine diagnoses, uh, Rich, I know you did a, a session at Hims on this exact subject where AI and um, the, the likes of it um, can be used to help with maybe complicated diagnoses and like sifting through the data. Um, so if you could kind of just key us in on what that talk was about and how your thoughts may have evolved since HIMSS in the last two weeks since a lot changes in such a short amount of time, that'd be great. Sure, thanks. So I had the fun of challenging ChatGPT with some real clinical scenarios that I've dealt with 
Um, one was a complex neurological illness. And ChatGPT got pretty far down the path. It got as far down as ALS, um, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease. But it, it missed the very fine point that this patient had something called facial onset sensory motor neuropathy, which, okay, you know, you, you need a neurologist to figure that one out. And then I gave it an ethical question with a diabetic who decided that she didn't want to take insulin anymore. And even if she died, she didn't care. Mm -hmm. And ChatGPT was remarkably good at, at surfacing a lot of the obvious agendas and hidden agendas in that kind of ethical challenge. It didn't say what the practitioner should do. It just said, these are things you might consider. And then I believe it had a disclaimer about if you're really concerned, call 911 or see your doctor, what have you. But it was pretty good at um, surfacing the uh, difficult issues. Yeah. Thank you, Rich. If I may just follow up on that, I, I you know, I, I agree. I think I, I probably put in a scenario once or twice a day and to play with it and see if it kind of where it takes me sometimes. Sometimes I'm not looking for a diagnosis. I'm, I'm kind of. I, I kind of feel like the um, the T Rex in Jurassic Park. I'm trying to find the or the Velociraptors trying to find the the hole in the electric fencing, um, and it's been pretty good so far. I think from an educational educational perspective, for me, I see this as an opportunity to teach students how to improve their um, history taking skills, how to improve their critical thinking skills, how to improve their differential diagnosis making skills, because. Um, you know, if you put in a scenario and say, give me a, give me five differentials, which is almost around when we start teaching our students about how to think in developing a differential diagnosis, um, there may be one or two on that list that ChatGPT comes up with that the student may not have thought of, which is then you can take that as a learning point and say, okay, go research this so that you know what the signs and symptoms of it are. Um, you know, and for me, from an educator perspective, it's it's more of a don't fear it in terms for from from a faculty perspective, but use it to inform yourself so that you can better prepare your students because your students are already using it, um, and uh, you just have to, you have to learn how to use it and be comfortable with it in order for uh, for you to maximize their uh, learning skills and the and the uh, tangible skills that they're going to need when they go out and practice. Um, and then secondly, when you look at, um, you know, when when Rich said he put in the scenario, we have been doing this uh, as a society since the invention of Google. Right. How many times, Rich, this probably has happened to you where a patient comes in and I said, I, I Googled what I my symptoms and I think I have this. Uh, it's ha and it happened. It's happened all the time. And so this is no different, except I feel like the difference with Google and this with ChatGPT is that. It's, it's got that conversational tone to it, which makes it feel a little bit more humanistic. Um, so, you know, it's, and I will just remind everyone that ChatGPT, unlike Google, is a closed database. It only will find what it, the database has been fed into the database. So um, there's a lot, a lot that we can still learn. Um, and I do think that this particular form of AI is in its very nascent stages. Thank you, Deepu. Um, it sounds like, I mean, we have to be teaching our future doctors and clinicians how to 
coexist with this kind of technology. And I mean, when we think about AI, it's healthcare that I think is the first industry that we associate as potentially being the biggest uh, industry to benefit from this uh, technology. And Mm -hmm. I think that also raises a lot of like ethical concerns where we're using this technology and there is the decision-making aspect to it that we've been talking about, but there's also the data that we're feeding into it in this closed database where the data itself might be skewed or biased depending on what we're inputting into the system. So Rich, if we could, um, if we could turn it back to you, what are some of your concerns around the ethics of having this technology in a clinical setting? And then uh, Deep will ask you the same question. Yeah, well, you know, if you think about the human brain as a pattern machine, which in large part we all have, and we learn patterns, that's what we do our whole life, and that's how we infer things all the time, and then we make decisions based on that. So ChatGPT is like a whole lot of human brains wired together, and it's got big database, and then it's doing inferences. So the inferences that it comes up with are based on the data. And so if the data has biases inherent within it, then the inferences are going to be likely biased. So an example would be, let's let's recognize that we have an issue with systemic racism in the United States that's always been here, just the way it is, and it's something we have to deal with. Well, there is a lot of information on the World Wide Web that is systemically racist. And so if you allow ChatGPT to just do what it's gonna do, It may make inferences that come out racist. Now, some of you may have heard this um, experience that the reporter Kevin Roos had early with Bing, where he was interacting with Bing and it started telling him that he wasn't in love with his wife and that he was really in love with Bing. And he was quite unnerved by this. And he did a podcast and it was really quite wonderful. But, you know, they shut that thing down and they went back to school to try to figure it out. But these are just a couple of examples where the old garbage in, garbage out saying that we all know from forever is also true with ChatGPT and its kin, um, that if there's junk in there, if there's disinformation, misinformation, I mean, look, we can we can look at COVID vaccines, right? So if ChatGPT says one day that COVID vaccines, vaccines don't work, they're not effective and they're not safe, well, we all, all on this panel know that's incorrect. But what if ChatGPT gets that wrong? So th- there are just some examples of where we have to keep an eye on it. Rich, you took all my examples. I was going to do COVID. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But I, I, I do. I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, garbage in, garbage out. That's exactly it. Remember that these systems are built by humans, so they innately have a bias. And there are a number of studies that have come out. Um, where uh, hospital organizations have tried to implement uh, AI algorithms into their uh, clinical workflows, and they've identified bias in um, the the algorithm not recognizing um, sometimes serious cases, things like sepsis, and missing really red flag diagnoses um, based on race. Um, Even something as simple as during COVID, I think um, there was a study that came out that uh, was it the O2 saturation, Rich, that the um, the bot wasn't reading or the algorithm wasn't re- accurately reading because of the skin color of um, of the patient because they had more melanin in their skin? 
um, it was incorrectly reading the O2 saturation. So again, these tools are built by humans. And if we don't do anything to mitigate those biases, uh, systemic or not, right, we're, it's just going to do what we are basically mimicking for it. So in many ways, it does represent us as a human species, uh, I guess. If we are if we are biased, this system is going to be biased until we reach that, until we d uh, decide as a society that we're going to address this. And there are a lot of there's a lot of research being done on how to mitigate the, the um, biases in in algorithms. But it's not. I don't think it's ever going to be perfect. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we won't have some sort of bias. There's also a trust factor with this. Um, clinicians are generally speaking, wary of having machines make decisions for us. If I, if I could just add one thing, which is that there's no such thing as no bias. So, for example, yeah. we can take the same set of facts and maybe we can agree on what the facts are and have radically different opinions, right? So we can say that Jokar Sernayev, who was the Boston Marathon bomber, we all agree he did the crime, some people think he should have the death penalty. Some people don't believe in the death penalty. We can have a woman who wants to have an abortion at 12 weeks, and some people should will say that is her right, and other people would say she shouldn't have that right. So same fact pattern, very different opinions, and there are many, many examples of this. And medicine is not immune from same fact pattern, different opinions. Yeah. And in fact, it's sometimes, you know, Part of our training is recognizing patterns. It's just that this does it better and faster. I will restate that faster, not necessarily better. But, um, you know, it's uh, it, it is, that is why it's helpful. And this is where it when you integrate certain aspects of the technology into your clinical practice or into workflows, it can help have uh, really positive downstream uh, effects. Thank you. So along those positive downstream effects, uh, what comes to mind for me is the cost-cutting benefits to having AI in the workplace, in the clinical settings. And I think of just streamlining processes, workflows, cutting out a lot of low-value tasks and work, um, like uh, taking down medical histories. So let's focus on the benefits for a second as far as cost cutting in the clinical settings. That's a huge focus of Arcadia's and what we try to support our customers with. So uh, Rich, starting with you, what are your thoughts on the cost cutting capabilities for AI? And then um, we'll see where we go from there. Yeah. Well, I'm smiling on that one because I've spent most of my career um, yelling at the overutilization and excess cost of the U.S. healthcare system. And all the things that we've done over the last 35 years that I've been in this thing haven't worked. And the cost of healthcare keeps going up no matter what. So I'm not exactly convinced yet that ChatGPT is gonna cut the cost of healthcare or even flatten the curve of the increases. Having said that, um, the example always I always like to give of really a wonderful little advance was electronic prescribing. So in the old days, I would handwrite 12 prescriptions for a patient for an annual checkup on a lot of medications, and I'd get writer's cramp and waste a lot of time and maybe make some errors doing it, hopefully not errors. But with electronic prescribing, it's 
almost error-free drug-drug interaction is there. We've had this for years. It's a tremendous step forward. It's really good. So again, like with the electronic health record, I don't know anyone who wants to go back to paper records, but we've also seen with the onset of the electronic health record, a lot of new bureaucratic requirements. So I'd love to see chat, chat GPT really taking work off the provider's plate and not replacing it with some other garbage that are making providers uh, more bummed out than they ever were. Yeah. Uh, you know, a clinical documentation comes to mind. Um, you know, the average clinician spends anywhere from 10 to 12 hours a week just documenting the patients that they've been seeing. Um, it would be great if, uh, you know, if you walked into an exam room and the AI was kind of in the room with you and the patient documenting that conversation um, accurately, I might I add. And, um kind of alleviate that that piece of the documentation, then you could actually have that conversation with a patient, right? It would allow more face-to-face -to -face time with the patient rather than you sitting in an exam room, most likely with a screen in front of your face and asking, you know, patients questions while you're typing. Um, you know, so that's just one one example of it. Um, there are other areas such as radiology, and we can certainly talk about that. Um, it's been, it's been AI in general, and not ChatGPT, but AI in general has been really, really good for um, image interpretation and radio, in radio, in radiology. Excuse me, um, because the average I read I read a study recently. The average radiologist um, they probably see if they work eight to ten hours, they see probably thousands of images in a in a particular shift. On the average radiologist spends three to four seconds. Per image. So imagine if you're reading a CAT scan that is usually hundreds of images and slices, right? Same thing with an MRI. Um, an AI can, can do that for you. It can recognize the patterns faster. It's really good at reading normal mammograms and normal chest x-rays, or perhaps even catching that, that mass that would have been missed uh, because of the subtle differences in lighting. So there are places where this is being implemented and there's room to grow uh, in, in all of these spaces, but whether it's an internal medicine practice who's looking to improve workflows or in uh, large organization systems where they're implementing radio, uh, radiology readings and they can turn those around um, um, faster uh, for us. But I agree yeah. with you, Rich. I think every time we've, we try to, cut costs it and inevitably is replaced with something more and I to me it's it's a public health kind of a holistic issue where we really need to partner with our citizens to help us do this because as much as we want to try as clinicians to solve the health issues that plague our nation as a whole um technology is not going to do that there there needs you need the part the human partnership um, the citizenship that goes along with that. Yeah, let me um, let me pick up on something you mentioned, Deepu, which is um, public health. And I think an area where this chat GPT technology may be incredibly helpful and powerful is in the area of both public health and scientific research. And if you think about, for example, our recent miserable experience with COVID, and, you know, hopefully we don't have to go through that again for another century, but Hopefully, we're going to be more ready for it when it does come using 
uh, for example, NLP, natural language processing capabilities that are enhanced with ChatGPT type tools to extract from written notes, uh, hints, clues about patterns of infectious diseases that could not only be national, but be global. So I have a lot of hope for uh, ChatGPT technology, um, NLP moving forward, um, both in public health and in research. Uh, so if you think about um, devising new drugs in oncology or any other part of medicine, there's just so much data. And I think that ChatGPT can do a lot of those inferences and hopefully speed up our discovery process. As by the way, it did with our most recent vaccine, the COVID vaccine. A lot of that behind the scenes work was happening. We didn't know about it, but they came up with that, that vaccine, the mRNA vaccine in record time uh, because that technology was there. So all of these technologies are going to be fed by the data that we've been talking about. Deepu, at the start, you said this is a chat GPT specifically, for example, is a closed system. It all it runs on the data that we feed into it. Mm -hmm. And so I read a report uh, recently, I think it was from KPMG, where mm -hmm. most healthcare executives are totally um, understanding that this technology will be implemented in one way or another. And the second uh, takeaway from that report was uh, a majority are concerned about data security and integrity when it comes to systems like these. And mm -hmm. so how do you see that tracking so far? It seems like we're just all systems go with feeding these models. But when it comes to healthcare, do you think we'll be ready for the data security um, needs that come with, um, you know, healthcare and using these kinds of technologies. Uh, Rich, let's start with you. Yeah, well, there's a recent example here in Massachusetts where uh, the former Harvard Pilgrim Tufts insurance carrier, um, whom I know very well, unfortunately had some kind of data breach that I haven't seen really a lot of detail on, but they're still suffering under it and they're having trouble paying bills, paying doctors, I don't think there was a huge loss of confidential HIPAA information as far as I understand, but that's just the most recent example. And these examples are all over the country. So data security is a really big deal. And I think that um, healthcare entities need to invest in that. And I know it's painful, but um, it must be done. I completely agree. Uh, we have not actually put in the money in this area for data security and healthcare and healthcare infrastructure the way we the way we need to. Um, the case that comes to mind for me is, I think it was last year, um, that patient in California who uh, was admitted and then had some, somehow Facebook got a hold of her data and then it started, the algorithm started feeding her whatever the diagnosis she was admitted with. And it was it was a breach in their in their system. And um, we definitely, we definitely need to do something about it. I don't think we're doing enough about it. Um, it'll be mostly because we need some regulatory guidance around how this is going to play out. There are entities out there like uh, Chai, the Coalition for Healthcare, uh, Healthcare AI, who are trying to put out some guidelines and blueprints in terms of how to think about this. Um, just today, um, the vice president just announced. Um, um, a meeting with um, industry, uh, tech industry leaders to 
um, set up uh, set up talks about how to start kind of putting guardrails around uh, this information. Um, unfortunately, I don't have much faith in the tech industry to to kind of self regulate. So this is going to have to come from uh, from the government, from the federal and state government levels. Um, so we need the FDA involved. Um, the FDA has done some work around it, um, especially in the devices uh, arena, so that we could do something about it. But the other part of this, the flip side of this, right? Like, and I just said that we as humans and citizens, we need to partner with this technology. We also need to take responsibility of our data, who we are sharing it with. Um, so in this day of wearables and iPhones and all the, where, you know, there's a geofencing and tracking that happens, we, everyone knows where we are. If they really wanted to know, we would, we would absolutely know where we are. So on a larger level, this has implications, but specifically in healthcare and protecting patient privacy, um, there is a lot of work to be done um, because we don't even have um, uh, proper regulations to talk about this. Yeah. And by the well, way, we have been in telehealth for three years and we still don't have the language to talk about. Right. I, I would just add to what you said, Deepu, that, um, you know, I think you said you don't have faith in industry to straighten it out. And I would add to that, I don't have faith in the government to straighten it out either. And there's a, you know, there's a delicate dance that goes on between private and public, between state and federal. And as we all know, based in the Constitution, the Supreme Court is supposed to be the final arbiter of our social issues that are challenging. And I know that the confidence in the Supreme Court right now is at an all time low. And I have also heard some comical moments before the Supreme Court in arguments where when issues come up like ChatGPT, some of the older justices get this blank look and they don't even know what people are talking about, no less how to adjudicate it. So I think it's fair to say that the framers of the Constitution did not anticipate ChatGPT, <laughs> um, but they didn't anticipate a lot of things. And the beauty say. of, right, I mean, the beauty of our Constitution is that it has to be flexible enough that we somehow we figure it out and we stumble through it. But I, I think it'll be a fascinating journey to watch the private, public, state, federal court interactions over time dealing with these social issues around information because it's not going to be simple. It's not gonna be simple. Add to that social media, the social media layer, add to that all the other layers uh, that as uh, society that we are now interconnected globally uh and what what that is going uh what that is going to do um so yeah uh to be continued and you know uh i i hope that we this is where like we were talking a little bit earlier about collaboration this is where cross-sector cross-industry collaboration is truly needed to come up with a set of guidelines for us to really um move forward in this yeah um, I'm not sure how much I trust the tech sector either for regulation. And then when it comes to um, uh, our Congress and our political leaders, I saw the head of TikTok, um, he was testifying before Congress, and the uh, Congress was, they just seemed clueless. They didn't even know what the TikTok CEO was talking about when he shared these technical details. It felt like I was explaining how to use Facebook to my parents. And so... You know, it uh, remains to be seen how the regulation is going to play out. It's funny you said that because my daughter actually sent me that TikTok video of uh, of 
the senator is kind of scratching their head about how it's connected to the, and I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they didn't even, they were clueless. Um, they were pretty confused. Um, so I want, this has been a lot of fun and I want to be sure uh, we have enough time for Q and A. And so I just want to ask one last question here and then I'll turn it back over to Mike so we can get Q and A started. Um, but we've been focusing this conversation on AI and, you know, rightfully so. And let's pretend for a second that chat GPT hasn't been released and we're still thinking about just general trends in digital health. What non-AI trends do you th should we be thinking about? Um, do you think could make an impact in the near future or just the future in general? Uh, Deepu, what do you think? Um, I think uh, the the easiest, like the low-hanging fruit, is really understanding how we collaborate better with each other and across industry. Um, even though I think a lot of industries are really good at collaborating within the industry, that cross-industry and cross-sector collaboration is really, really needed. Um, and, you know, part of the role that I am in is making those connections, right? I'm in academia, but I also want to talk to those who are in industry so that we can have that conversation and really bring what the industry already has built and the knowledge they have to the budding clinicians who we are educating um, in, in our programs. And so I would say collaboration and um, that it's just a great, simple way to start. Um, and then have these discussions at your place of work. You may not be the place that has integrated AI or is even talking uh, about it at a uh, CEO level, although CEOs are thinking about it. So it's important that you bring up these conversations and how and be part of that conversation. As healthcare providers, sometimes we shy away from the technology piece of it, but I do think this is the one time we have a lot of value to add to, to the conversation. Yeah, I would just pick up on the collaboration piece, and it reminds me of two short points I want to make. Point number one is this is already happening. This is already affecting our society. So everyone's probably read about the screenwriters strike where they are very concerned that ChatGPT is literally going to take their jobs away and start writing their lines for them. Um, and I want to take the collaboration point back to the education system. And I really think that the current educational system from elementary school all the, all the way through graduate school, frankly, is ready for a revolution. And education heretofore has been based on stuffing information into people's heads. And with the onset of Google, we don't really need that anymore. You can look things up. You don't have to memorize all this stuff that we were made to memorize as kids. I'm not saying you shouldn't know things. Yes, we have to know things. But I would like to see the emphasis in education more on teamwork, on solving problems together, on people figuring out how to work together, on people figuring out how to understand their differences and bridge them. And that, I think, is going to be a more exciting way uh, to use our new tools. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll say here is let's not try to suppress it or repress it. It's here to stay. So let's work with it and uh, use it. Use it well. This is very much, if I may just put in one quick thing, this is very much the same inflection point we were at when the internet was first out for mainstream use. We all panicked. We all thought it was gonna take our job. We all thought our students weren't gonna learn anything because they would look everything up. 
and we learned how to use it as a tool, as a resource, and this is no different. I'll stop there, Mike, <laughs> or, or Ben, I don't know who I'm supposed to throw it to. <laughs> Mike, I'll turn it to you. I think we can get started with Q&A if you think that's the right move. Uh, Can't hear you, Mike. I'm not hearing Mike. Mike, we're not hearing you. Yeah, this, this has been fantastic. Um, I really love the optimism that we're ending on here. We, we have a great number of uh, smart questions that came in, but we actually have a special guest really quick that wants to ask a question. It's ChatGPT. Um, so ChatGPT is here with a question. Could you elaborate on how AI could be integrated into the diagnostic process to improve accuracy and efficiency? Do you want to take that, Rich? Oh, I thought this was a question for ChatGPT. This is a question for us. <laughs> no, this is a question from ChatGPT to you. So Dr. Rich, at HIMSS, you were asking the questions of ChatGPT. We actually have that linked in the related content for those who want to check it out later. But now ChatGPT has this question for you. Got it. Well, I'm not sure that ChatGPT is allowed to ask questions, so that might be a violation right there. <laughs> Um, and, and I think we may have to give one demerit to chat GPT. Um, like but if we're going to let, right. I mean, this is like Hal in 2001 starting to tell people <laughs> what to do. So for those of you who haven't seen 2001 in a while. Um, so yeah, I, I, I mean, this actually brings to mind a completely different topic, but I just want to throw it out there, which is I'm really interested in the interaction of chat GPT, chat GPT and people with mental illness because people with mental illness are not necessarily, if they're having delusions and they're not in this sharing the same set of facts of the world that we are, I think it's going to be really interesting in the world of psychiatry. Psychiatry is already using chat bots for a lot of back and forth and therapy, and there seems to be some benefit for that. But I'll be very interesting, interested to see how ChatGPT interacts uh, people with people, especially with psychotic disorders. Um, so maybe we can just plant that seed and and return to that in another day. I probably didn't answer your question, but I answered the question I wanted to answer. I think that's in true form with ChatGPT because it's not always answering your question. <laughs> Very true. Deepu, do you have anything to add about how? No, uh, can... <laughs> I have nothing to add. To fantastic. Okay, let's jump in. I, we have we have a ton of questions from the audience. We're probably not going to get through them all. And there's some commentary in here too. This. This thought was really interesting, so I'm going to share it, and then I'm going to have you two respond to it uh, conversationally. Uh, it seems like AI could help prevent bias in areas where a particular issue is presented often and may cause a healthcare worker to jump to conclusions due to overwork, etc. However, AI can't really see body language to pick up those nuances. Some patients that are maybe close to death or in excruciating pain, they'll tell you, you know, it's a five out of ten, where another patient having the same exact experience or similar experience might tell you it's an eight out of 10 when, the, when they're barely hurting. So how do you think um, AI could augment those interactions between clinicians and their patients who are experiencing very similar, um, similar uh, you know, things, but maybe uh, having, you know, describing them differently? Yeah, this is a very interesting question. You know, it makes me think of when I work in hospice and a lot of times we're dealing with pain and the patient's perception of pain and what should we do about it. 
Um, and there's what the patient says, but then there's how the patient looks. And so the nurses and I, we've all learned to look, is the patient grimacing? Are they clenching? So there are physical signs of distress that can be actually more meaningful than the number five out of 10, two out of 10, whatever. So maybe ChatGPT at some point is going to get lined up with visual images of patients and start to merge the visual image with yeah. the ChatGPT logic. DP, yeah. what do you think? I completely agree. And having worked in the ER, uh, you know, of course, one one person's five out of 10 is another person's uh, nine out of 10, right? It's subjective. Uh, but I would envision something like uh, we have a visual analog scale. So those are the, those, the pain scales that you see with the smiley faces and they say we're point to a point to which face you're feeling in terms of pain. Imagine kind of having one of those that's personalized to you based on your own face. And then that's part of your EMR. And the algorithm is able to, every time you go for a visit, it's able to say, well, when you were seen two years ago, two out of 10, you looked like this, but eight out of 10, you're looking like this and perhaps spit out based on past visits. This is where you might be on a, on a scale of zero to 10 and looking for the clinician to kind of confirm that from a subjective aspect in terms of the rest of your body language, right? So uh, this is kind of where I think we're headed uh, and it would be very, very interesting to see this. And pain is a very interesting area to study because it is so subjective and it is so different for every, everyone experiences it differently. Deepu, that's a really interesting use case. I'm reminded of a story I saw in the news not too long ago of a nurse who went to a hockey game and she looked at one of the players and just based on the way he looked, she knew he had some kind of ailment. I can't remember what it was specifically, but she was like, hey, go go to the, the doctor's office. You really need to get checked out. Go to the hospital. And it saved his life just, just by that, you know, like her experience, mm -hmm. being able to see him, she saw something was off. And he got the care he need, needed because of it. It'll be interesting, you know, when imaging and AI comes together to have that level of detail to, you know, maybe you even wake up and you pull up your phone and the phone says, hey, there's something wrong. You need to go get checked out. That, that's a yeah, really I mean, interesting use case. Experience paired with intuition and now paired with data-backed AI, that can really change, change how we deliver care. All right, let's jump into our next question. This person is saying, my understanding of large language models like ChatGPT, they analyze a huge amount of data to determine what is the next word that should be used in developing its response. Do you know what medical information it has access to? This brings us back to that privacy and security question. Um, is there any plan that either of you know about to open up EMRs? Uh, to allow this kind of access for these large language models to this data? And what does that mean for privacy you know, and security? I don't remember the database that ChatGPT particular use it, uh, particularly uses, um, but I will say it's, a, it's older data, um, you, typically from the early 2000s. So in terms of healthcare, that's almost irrelevant data because it's not current evidence-based medicine. Um, but uh, Google's MedPalm, which is coming out, is specifically, or has come out actually, 
um, specifically targeted towards healthcare professionals and using AI in, in their practice. I personally have not um, been able to um, play around with it, uh, but if you have, Rich, I'd, I'd love to hear your experience. And in terms of EMRs, um, EMRs themselves are actually very, uh, tend to be secure and closed systems themselves. To my knowledge, none of these large language models are connected to, uh, to EMRs at this time. Yeah. But, but I think it, I think I think Mike it raises the interesting question about if this could serve a public good, then why don't we do it? So, for example, Epic has however many hundred million records, uh, probably worldwide, and if ChatGPT had access to all of that, let's say, um, you know, de-identified, there are all sorts sorts of inferences that maybe could be drawn from a public health and research perspective. So. I suspect there's going to be pressure to do it at some point because it can bring us forward. Another example would be a lot of us use UpToDate, which is a wonderful um, proprietary online resource of medical information. Um, mm -hmm. But there's no reason why UpToDate should give all of its hard work to ChatGPT. But again, there's going to be pressure to get it. And I'm sure there are going to be all sorts of legal battles that are going to go on. And we're going to see this play out over the next five, 10, 20 years. I will say, just to make a finer point, even though ChatGPT may not be connected to the current EMRs, I'm sure Epic is doing its own version of data, secondary data mining within its own records, right? At, at each uh, organization. Because that secondary data market of our data just sitting there, like I go to the doctor and I've gone to the doctor for 20 years of my life, I'm not 20, but 20 years of my life and that data, as I get older and older, is going to help make decisions uh, based on algorithms. And that, I think, is already happening, but within the EMRs themselves, not with um, uh, outside entities like ChatGPT. I really love this next question. And um, Dr. Rich, I'm sure you have a perspective on this because you've worked with a lot of older patients and you've worked in hospice. Um, this question is about how do we help build trust in AI collaborative practices, particularly in older populations? There's a subset of people who have a deep distrust of the healthcare system as is. Uh, this person saying they're concerned that AI may drive a deeper fear in that population and cause more people to distrust healthcare overall, whether AI is in use or not. So how do we help build that trust and get people to see that um, this is a collaborative process, this is something that is beneficial? Yeah, I mean, the way to build trust is to do good work for people. And it can't be talked about. It has to be done. So, for example, this morning I was hearing a presentation about a Mayo Clinic's hospital at home project where they've done a great job keeping people out of the hospital by um, telecommunication with sick people at home, doctors working remotely. Um, there was a lot of skepticism initially that this could work. And they proved that it does work. Um, so those people that are currently benefiting from mm -hmm. technology, keeping them out of the hospital instead of having to travel maybe very far to, for a 15, 20 minute visit or getting much more um, kind of close care. That's to be an example from today where technology is bringing the trust because it's doing a good job for people. So the proof's always in the pudding. Yeah, there was an article in JAMA. I believe last year, late last year that came out where uh, the Framingham Heart Study, which has been a 
long-standing study that's been ongoing. They did a nested cohort. Um, cohort. They took uh, patients 65 and older and uh, looked at their uh, use of uh, smartphones and technology in terms of uh, telehealth use and things like that. And they found that that cohort, the older older patient population, um, was more likely to follow up and do telehealth visits than the other 40 and younger um, population. So, um, you know, it's in this particular population, sometimes it's, it's probably one of two things. It's fear, right? They don't know how to use the technology. There's a digital literacy component to this uh, for the older generation. But also trust, uh, which comes with knowing how to use the technology and the facility with which you use it. Um, and then uh, also uh, understanding what their needs are. Um, it's every population is going to have its own way of dealing with um, with technology. And I think part of that is as a society, as a public health initiative, um, learning that digital, digital literacy is as important as the care that we deliver. That's fantastic. Um, there's one last question that we have time for. Uh, if we didn't get to your question, I'm sorry, we'll, we'll try to, uh, you know, um, get to it after the call. But this last question, I think, is related to the previous one. This person is saying um, the healthcare experience can already be bad in this country. And I guess this is a policy question as well. If we replace touch points between caregivers and patients with the same experience you get when you call customer service, for example, it's only going to get worse. So how do we make sure these tools are used in service of a better healthcare experience for everybody? Yeah, well, it's a great question, and maybe it's a good place to kind of wrap things up, which is um, there's an old saying that, you know, the care of the patient is in the care of the patient. And we have to keep in mind that the clinician, doctor, NP, PA, nurse, patient relationship is sacrosanct. And no one is saying that it should or will be replaced by chat GPT. That would definitely be a step backward. I think what we're talking about today is can we leverage these powerful tools to enhance the clinician-patient relationship? And that's how I want to see it used. To me, that's the winning argument. I was uh, listening to a podcast and um, someone made a really good point about, um, you know, normally before, normally before COVID, before telehealth, before technology was infused in our lives and, and, and in healthcare, you would see your your healthcare provider once a year for your annual checkup, maybe once every three months if you were being seen in follow-up. Um, this technology is changing that. You are actually more, more connected to your provider through the use of all of these technologies. The thing that has changed is that you have untethered your care from a hospital building. And that in and of itself is a revolutionary way of thinking about how care is being delivered. You no longer have to go to an office to receive the same quality of care that you used to receive. You can do that from home. You can do that while you're on vacation. You can do it wherever you are. Um, the, the technology is there. We just need the policies to follow suit. Well, great. Thank you so much, Deepu, Dr. Rich, and Ben for leading this 
fantastic discussion. There has been uh, so much optimism, so many good ideas that we facilitated today on this conversation. I'd love this conversation to continue on LinkedIn afterwards. Um, and then uh, I, I'd love for all of you to just take a look at Dr. Rich's HIMSS uh, pre presentation around ChatGPT. That's in the show notes. We also have some resources that we've cited here on the call today in our infographics. Thank you for participating, for sharing your thoughts and asking really good questions. We do these sessions every uh, about six weeks. So keep an eye out for the next one. We'd love for you to come back and participate again. And uh, the recording of this session will be available shortly. You'll see an email within the next 24 hours or so. So share it with your friends, your colleagues, everyone that you want to um, see this session as well. Dr. Rich, Deepu, Ben, thank you again so much for your participation. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. For thank the you. It was a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you. Everyone. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. See ya.